Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Our main focus this evening will be on Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26. But I want to pick up the reading earlier. I want to pick up uh, a couple of verses in chapter 47, a couple of verses in chapter 48, and then we'll pick up in chapter 49, verse 28, and read through the end of the book. Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 29. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed his head and worshipped. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Jumping to chapter 48, verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. And then picking up the reading in chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now forty days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die. In my grave which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, 
and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Akkad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Akkad, they said, This is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears, uh, Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Require the reading of God's holy word. I'll ask his blessing on it. Our Father, we have read your word and we ask now for your spirit's illumination that we would see how Christ is present in this text, how all of scripture points towards him and finds its fulfillment in him. And we ask for your spirit's enlightenment to that end, that we would see these things. We pray in Jesus' name. overcome by that dreadful panic at the thought that one day you will die. The thought comes creeping into your mind perhaps at a, a time where you didn't expect it. Perhaps you need not be at a funeral. Perhaps you're just about your daily business. And then all of a sudden it comes to you and it occurs to you that you are going to die one day. One day it will be over. There will no longer be a chance for repentance. You had better be sure that you uh, were safe in Christ before that time. 
And what did you find that you weren't? It can be easy to distract ourselves when such thoughts come creeping into our minds by turning through the television or turning to the internet. There's no end of all of the distractions on offer. And we take your mind away from such serious thoughts and numb you and entice you into just thinking about temporary things that are immediately around you and which can can uh, numb the mind as it contemplates heavy realities. And yet, in Jesus Christ, this doesn't need to be our response when we contemplate death. We don't need to go looking for a, a distraction to numb our minds or to make us pretend like the problem isn't there. Instead, with faith in Christ, we can look at death and recognize that it is a, a tremendously weighty thing, but that there is a Savior who has triumphed over death. There is a Savior who has ended the reign of death. And faith can look at that Savior and say, that's my Savior. That Savior himself is no longer subject to death, and because I belong to him, I too will never die. So this evening we will be considering such a, a faith that looks to Christ in his triumph over the reign of death. And as we do so, we'll look at three balms, or three ointments, three salves that our text offers those who are destined to the grave, those who are destined to one day themselves become embalmed uh, by an undertaker, by a mortician. These balms are not the balms of a mortician or an undertaker. These are the balms of the good physician. These are not balms that try to just slow down the decay process of a corpse. But these are balms which make the soul well. And if in Jesus Christ, these are balms which even make the body well too in resurrection life. So consider the first balm that our text offers us, and that's this, that God's promises interrupt the reign of death. We read a, a fairly significant portion from the end of Genesis, and even that was just a, a sampling of the, the longer Joseph narrative, but we read texts that were dealing with the, the deaths of two individuals, of Jacob and of Joseph. But really, the whole Joseph narrative has been, in a certain sense, one long death scene. The Joseph narrative begins with a supposed death. Joseph has supposedly been torn to shreds by a wild animal. And Jacob, full of sorrow, says, I will go down to Sheol mourning. I will go down to the grave mourning. And Periodically throughout the story, we are reminded that Jacob is, is going to die. And Jacob refuses to send Benjamin with his brothers, lest uh, Benjamin also uh, lose his life. And if that were to happen, Jacob says that he would again go down to the grave. Uh, his, his gray hairs would be brought down to the grave. When Jacob comes down to Egypt. Uh, he 
says after his sons have come back and, and they've persuaded him that Joseph really is alive, and Jacob says, I will go down to see Joseph before I die. He goes down to Egypt. And then 17 years pass. And then he gets to dine in earnest. That's where we pick up with the reading that, that we read. He summons Joseph to him, and he summons his grandsons. And before he dies, he pronounces a blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh. And then he gets back to talking about his death and how how he's to be buried. And then he blesses his sons. And then he gets back to talking about how he's to be buried. He gets back to talking about his death. And then there's a long narrative that describes the burial process. And then at the very end, we have the death of Joseph. But death is, is all over the, the Joseph narrative. And then especially coming to a concentrated point in the final chapters of Genesis. And yet notice that even as death reigns through the text, as there are uh, all of these death scenes, all of this talk about death, notice how often this talk of death and burial is interrupted. It's not just one long continuous narrative about dying, but a bit about dying and then it's interrupted by a promise that God had given. Jacob is about to die, but there's blessing. There's the promise of God's blessing through Ephraim and Manasseh. And then this is how uh, you're to bury me, but then there's blessing for the 12 sons. And then Jacob dies and they bury him, but then you have the reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers in which Joseph proclaims that through him God has kept many people alive. And then finally we come to the death of Joseph. But even with that death there is still a forward look to what God had promised that there's going to be life in the land. That Joseph's bones are to be carried up out of Egypt and brought into the promised land. everywhere interrupted. Interrupted by hope, interrupted by the blessings being passed on to the next generation, interrupted by promises that Israel will inherit the land, interrupted by this interpretation that the brothers meant it for evil in selling Joseph into slavery, but God meant it for good. Here is this, this wonderful statement interpreting of the brothers in light of God's greater salvation purposes. And on either side of, of this statement, there are two corpses in the text. The corpse of Jacob and the corpse of Joseph. Surrounded by death, and yet even in the middle of that context, there is this expression of faith that you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We cannot even apply the death of Stomp and Adam that the tree from the tree in the garden and death came into the world that even man's sin even all of the death that has resulted from that God is still able to purpose and bring to good through his son Jesus Christ that even something so severe as death itself 
God compares to our good with his son. So we recognize that though death pervades the closing chapters of Genesis, it's by no means an uncontested presence. That all along the way, God's promises, God's faithfulness, God's gracious dealing despite and against man's uh, worst intentions is prevailing and interrupting and, and causing the test. To a point that death isn't even talked about except in connection with the promised land and the burial of the bodies and the, the expectation that Israel would enter into the land. That is the first bond that the promises of God interrupt the reign of death. There's a second bond for us that the fulfillment of God's promises nullify the reign of death. Not just interrupt, but they nullify the reign of death. In our text we see that death does not nullify the promises of God. Death is not the end. Jacob's life is not the measure of God's promises. Not Jacob's life is not the measure of God's power, and nor is Joseph. That there, there remains a purpose of God that goes beyond the lifespan of, of either Jacob or Joseph. Jacob is dead. Joseph is dead. But the seed of Abraham continues and lives on. The seed of the woman continues and lives on. And Jesus lives on. And that makes all the difference. If your life is the sum of all things, then death really is the great nullifier. You may find happiness in this life and say, oh, yes, I, I have it. But then death can, can come unexpected and take all of that away. Take all your happiness and say, nullify great void over all of that. Death can nullify all the riches of this world. Have you considered that materially speaking a hundred years from now you and Elon Musk will have the same net worth? We look at a man like that and we, we think about how, how far ahead he is of us materially speaking, how much wealth he has. And what would it be like to possess all of that wealth? But when we lie in the grave, materially speaking, we will both have, we will all have, no wealth to our name on earth. There is a treasure to be laid up in heaven for us, but but in terms of the, the money that's issued by the banks here, death can nullify all of that wealth. can say, I'm going to build bigger barns and live at ease, and death will write over that, nullify, your plans are void. You can say to yourself, next year, I'm going to travel to Europe and enjoy myself, and death can write over that, null and void. You can say to yourself, ten years from now, I'm going to have my house paid off, and everything in life will be just right, and death can write over that. is not able to write over the promises of God, nor and void. When God says to Abraham, I will bless you and multiply you, I will give you this land, and through your offspring I will bring my plan of global blessing to fruition, 
death cannot thwart them. Because all of the promises of God come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. These promises come to a, a concrete expression in the person of Jesus Christ. And death no longer has victory over Jesus. And so in order for death to be able to nullify the promises of God, it wouldn't just have to nullify some, some piece of paper, some contract. It would have to nullify a person. It would have to nullify Jesus himself. It would have to bring Jesus back into the grave to nullify those promises. And death cannot do that. The conflict between death and the Son of God was settled some 2,000 years ago. That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, never to return to the grave. But he is the one who brings to fruition all of the promises of God. And because of that, death has no claim on victory. And because of that, death has no claim over you. Because you belong to him. That yes, there will be that cessation of biological processes, there will be the cessation of respiration, there will be the cessation of digestive processes. But for all who have believed in the Son of God, for all who believe that He is the resurrection and the life, Jesus promises they will never die. And whoever believes on Him, though he die, yet will he live. That there is a, a kind of life that is possessed in Jesus Christ, such that never experience real death. You, you will experience the biological death, but not the spiritual death. You have the substance of life in Jesus Christ already. And death cannot nullify that. Death cannot do anything about that. That is a clear and certain confidence that you may have us is the reminder that God gives a tangible token to assure us that Christ has broken the way of death. Not only does God interrupt the reign of death by his promises, and not only does the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ actually nullify the reign of death, but God also knows that we're weak. He knows that we struggle with anxieties and fears and doubts. So he gives us something tangible that we can look at and be assured by that, yes, this promise is true and real. It's been Israel struggled as they were trying to enter into the promised land with this very thing, that they were afraid of death. If we enter into the land, they are going to slaughter us. We are going to die if we try. And Israel prayed back. And yet in the wilderness, God had given Israel a, a token, a, a physical thing to carry with them to remind them that he was intending to give them this land, to assure them that his promises were real. He gave them Joseph's bones. As Israel left Egypt, they carried with them Joseph's some 400 years had, had passed in Egypt. 
They're in the wilderness wandering around, and perhaps the thought of temptation uh, comes in, into their mind. Is this just some made-up story? Is this just some myth that, that got passed down from generation to generation? Is God really intending to give us this land, this inheritance that he's promised for us? And there's a physical token that Israel can go look at and say, yes, this is real. Here are the bones of Joseph who talked with Jacob, who had the promises that uh, this man's father had spoken with the Lord himself. The Lord appeared to Jacob, and he appeared uh, uh, through Jacob. He addressed his sons. This is uh, this is Joseph's bones. Yes, the promise is real. We can look at it. It's right here with us as we're going along. We have no need to doubt. In the same way the Lord gives you the body of someone to assure you that all of the promises of salvation are true. That they're not made up not just some story that's been passed down through generation to generation, but he gives you a tangible token that you can touch, that you can hold, that you can put in your mouth, and, and bodily say that yes, the promises are real. In Israel, they doubt. Go look at the coffin. Perhaps don't go touch it and try to make them think. But here in and reign in the new covenant where we, the Lord's Supper that becomes a token of Christ's body broken for us saying yes, your promise is real you can taste it, you can ingest it and believe may God deal patiently with his people giving them a tangible reminder a tangible token that the promises are real in Christ their, their anxieties and their temptation towards unbelief. But consider also how much greater the token that God gives to us is now than the token that he gave to Israel in the form of Joseph the bones. Joseph's bones were a reminder that the promises were real, that they would inherit the land, that these bones were destined, that, that Jacob had made uh, his brothers swear that they would bring his bones into the promised land. <clears throat> but even as they did so, they were carrying around with them a corpse, or at least bones, a completely rotted corpse to the point that it, it, the bones remained. And so Israel, wandering through the wilderness, was something like a 40-year funeral procession. And that as they entered the promised land, they brought that Imagine going on a family vacation. You load up the car, you drive for hours and hours across the country until you finally reach a rental house, an oceanfront house, turquoise blue water, white sand, a salt breeze blows on you as you step out of the car, and the, the house is, is more grand than all the pictures showed it to be. You can't believe that a house like this even exists. And you think, ah, oh, this is this is paradise. So you unload the car, you unload your 
suitcases to trunks, take them in, to get settled, and then you remember, oh wait, we left something in the rooftop terrace. And you go back to the car, you open up the rooftop terrace, you open it up, and there are the mummified remains of your dear friend Harry Bryant. And then you remember that we're not in paradise anymore. As beautiful as this land is, as wonderful as it is, we've come here carrying the death with us. This was something like the situation of Israel as it entered the promised land, a land that was was a paradise, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that gives its abundance and its produce, a land watered by the Lord. And yet, even as they enter, they enter carrying death. that began in Genesis 3 with death. From the day that Adam and Eve would eat from the fruit, they would surely die. And having sinned, the death reigns over mankind. We still find at the close of Genesis, and even as Israel enters into the promised land, there is still looming that problem of death. Death is then Consider then Jesus Christ. So much better than Joseph. Consider where he has entered. Jesus has not just entered into uh, the land of Canaan, but that he has ascended into heaven itself. He has ascended into the presence of God. You know, as he did so, he didn't do so like Joseph pile of bones, having decayed for hundreds of years, but he does so in incorruptible and immortal life. He does so with a body not subject to death. He doesn't do so being carried passively by his descendants, but Jesus ascends into the heavens in the power of the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, when he enters the land that God at that time had promised, enters it wrapped in grave clothes, wrapped in mummy wrappings, and yet, how does Jesus enter heaven? How does Jesus exit the tomb? He doesn't do so like Lazarus, linen cloths clinging to him as he exits the tomb, the trappings of death still clinging to him. But when Jesus rose from the dead, the linen wrappings, the grave clothes stayed where they belonged in the tomb because they no longer had even a thread of claim on Jesus. That death was fully and finally brought to an end in his resurrection. That the victory was decisive and final. That there's no going back into the tomb for Jesus like there was for Lazarus. There's no entering the promised land in a casket like there was for Joseph. But there is the fulfillment of God's promise that Jesus enters into the heavenly presence of God with an incorruptible, immortal body. And he does so as your representative and Savior. That in his resurrection and ascension, you too will inherit by faith. We are guaranteed and assured that just as Jesus Christ has passed from death into incorruptible life, just as Jesus has made an end 
of the, the reign of God so that Thomas is free to leave his wheelchair. He's taken away all of my sin and the consequence of sin will be forever and ever. Amen. 